Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 167 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker, and on this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 25 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my screw-ups. I've got a great show for you today. I'm returning to my discussion of West March's campaigns with a discussion of how to set up and run one of these campaigns. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a monster episode today. There is so much to talk about when it comes to West March's campaigns and even splitting this up into probably three or more episodes it, it's still a lot to cover in one episode, so um, I'm going to do my best to get through as much of it today as I can. Real quickly, at the top of the show, I want to remind you that you can now get your hands on official Game Master's Journey uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts and really kind of whatever you want. We have a uh, store over on Spreadshirt and Nikki has made quite a few designs for you to choose from featuring logos and art from Game Master's Journey and also my adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. So you can find a link to our show, our show, our store over on Spreadshirt on our website in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. Also, um, as I just mentioned, I have an adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. It's a self-published adventure for D&D that is also available at StarWalkerCOs.com for purchase. So I hope that you will check that out. And also, real quick, at the top of the show, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to new patron of StarWalker Studios, Miles. Thank you so much, Miles, for joining the esteemed ranks of the patrons. I really appreciate your support and patronage. I did get some feedback on last week's episode, episode 166, where uh, we started introducing the concept of West March's style campaigns. And this feedback is coming from the community for Game Master's Journey over on Google+. And this is from Dietrich Fister. And he says, on the subject of mismatched character levels, thus far I found it to actually be kind of an interesting tactical exercise for the players. And Dietrich has uh, a West Marches style campaign that he's running right now. And he told us quite a bit about it in the community over on Google Plus. So you can go check that out if you want to. He goes on to say, often the PCs are used to being pretty equivalent in power and their tactical approaches tend to reflect this. What I've seen, especially with 5th edition's bounded accuracy approach, is that the lower level PCs still have an important role to play, especially since action economy is so crucial, but it changes how they play those roles. The low-level fighter will stick with ranged attacks. The low-level cleric and bard will focus their efforts on buffing their allies. 
and the higher level players will adjust their formations to best shield these PCs from the devastation. It changes up their usual bag of tricks in interesting ways and adds an additional level of risk they are otherwise not accustomed to. So I'd see the level mismatch as an opportunity rather than something to worry about. And given the scaling of XP requirements for leveling, the lower level PCs won't stay behind for too terribly long. And yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Dietrich. I, I think that the uh, bounded accuracy of 5th edition, like you said, is, is really going to not make this an issue. I definitely think this probably could have been an issue in earlier vis- versions of the game or, or editions of the game. But, you know, the, the way the 5th edition system is designed, um, just as a group of kobolds or other low CR monsters can still be a, a threat to higher level PCs in the same way a lower level PC can still be an asset to a group. And this is because of bounded accuracy. And and what we mean by that is that the spread of bonuses and armor classes that are available in the game is, is much smaller compared to say third edition or other editions of, of D and D. So, you know, it, a plus one bonus is a much bigger deal in fifth edition than it was in third edition. And, you know, your, your first level character who only has a plus two proficiency bonus, plus whatever other bonuses they might have can still uh, be able to hit whatever they're fighting because the armor classes in fifth edition uh, don't go as crazy high as they were low as they did in previous editions. So, you know, at least in the first two tiers of play, um, you're not going to hardly ever, if ever, encounter any armor classes above 20. And even in armor classes high as 20 is pretty rare at the beginning tiers of play. And personally, I think the West March's campaign style works best in tier one and two and works less good in tier three and even less so in in tier four, which I'll I'll probably uh, talk about if not in this episode in in one of the the later ones. So, you know, the the lower level characters are are going to be able to still hit things that that they're fighting. Um the the main issue is going to be that they are not going to have as many hit points and uh they might not have as high of an armor class, but like Dietrich is saying here, the players can compensate for this through their tactics and positioning. And things like that. And, you know, a big theme of a West March's campaign is uh, at least a nod to realism and the dangers of adventuring and exploring unexplored and unmapped areas. And these dangers include things like running out of food and water, uh, getting lost. Uh, encountering monsters out there in the wilderness that are way beyond your ability to cope with. And and I would say that having one or more characters in the party that are lower level than what kind of the average is, is just another one of those def- difficulties. And, and it's very much in keeping with the themes of a West March's campaign, which is really the players using cunning and tactics to overcome these difficulties and and giving a focus 
to scouting and reconnaissance and, you know, not just barging through the wilderness, but, but being careful and stealthy and, um, scouting ahead and, and knowing what you're getting into before you get into it. So, and a a final thing I would say about this is because, uh, the West marches is also very much about player directed things, whether the players are deciding when they're going to play or what they're going to do. I think this is another aspect of that in that it's really going to be up to the players whether or not they're going to allow a given character to come with them or whether they're going to say, you know, sorry, but that character is too low level to go on this particular expedition with us. So that will just be yet another thing for the players to manage. So thank you so much for that feedback, Dietrich. I I really appreciate it. So um, that's that's pretty much it for the uh, West Marches uh, relevant feedback. So without further ado, let's get to our main topic. All right, so we are returning to discussion of West March's style campaigns. And we began this discussion in episode 166 of the show. So if you're a new listener and this is your first episode of Game Master's Journey, I highly encourage you to uh, pause this episode right now and go listen to episode 166. Uh, Christopher joined me on that episode and we talked quite a bit about what is a West Marches campaign? What makes a West Marches campaign a West Marches campaign? So that's pretty important kind of introductory information uh, that you'll want to know uh, before delving into this discussion today. So today I'm going to be talking about um, how you actually prepare to run one of these campaigns and then how you actually go about running it. So really, uh, to my mind, there's going to be uh, three main aspects of preparing for the campaign. You're going to want to create a home town or village uh, for a home base for the player characters. You're going to want to create a map of the area And then you're going to want to create um, encounter areas and encounter tables. So those are kind of the the three main things to to do to set up. And and we'll go through these one by one. So the first thing is that you want to have a home base for the player characters. This works best as either a village or a relatively small town. And this is a safe place that the PCs can return to between their adventures, between their forays out into the wilderness. And it's a place for the player characters to exchange information with one another. Because one of the ideas behind the West March's campaign is that you have a larger pool of players, more than you're going to have at the table for any one session. And they're all working together to explore this area. So this home base is a place where in between sessions during downtime, the player characters can 
compare notes. And when a, a group comes back from a foray into the wilderness, presumably they, they go to the local gathering place, which is probably going to be an inn or a tavern. And they tell the other adventurers who didn't go on this particular expedition what they found, what they encountered. They're going to add to the map at this point and they they compare notes. And this is also where in world the characters are organizing their next expeditions, deciding where they're going to go, who's going to be involved and all that good stuff. Now, Ben Robbins, the person who came up with this style of campaign and, and coined the term West Marches. And I will link to his blog uh, about this in the show notes over at StarWalkerStudios.com. Ben felt that it was very important to create a dichotomy where the town is a place of safety and the wilderness outside of the town is a place of danger. And Ben recommended securing the town uh, with either a wall or perhaps natural features like rivers or mountains or cliffs or things like that to make this distinction very obvious and, and reliable so that the players can feel like when they're in town that they're safe, that, you know, that monsters aren't going to come running up behind them while they're in town. And also on the flip side, when they're out in the wilderness, they're on their own. And Ben says draconian law enforcement inside the town, coupled with zero law enforcement in the wilds outside of town, also helps in this. Once you're outside of the town, you are truly on your own. So that's definitely a way you could approach it too. You know, out in the wilderness, you know, there's no there's no guards, there's no soldiers, there's no one to enforce any laws that might exist. But in the town, you know, that enforcement could be very strict because this is a frontier area and they they just can't afford to to screw around with people. Also, Ben recommended in this home base of a town keeping NPC adventures in the area rare or even better non-existent. And I completely agree with this. It should be up to the player characters to explore this area, not NPCs. Having NPC adventures in the area make it harder to explain why the interesting things that are nearby haven't already been discovered by NPCs. And you also want the players to have the excitement of being the first ones to discover the things that they uncover in the wilderness. You don't want to rob them of that by saying, oh, some NPC has already been here. So keep this in mind when you're designing the campaign area. You know, you want to ask yourself, why is it that there aren't NPC adventures in this area? Why are the PCs the only ones that are around to explore it? Why is it that this area is unexplored? Why, why isn't anything known about it? Is this maybe a newly opened frontier that, that they want to settle? Or is adventuring so dangerous that no one in their right mind does it other than the player characters who maybe aren't in their right minds? Or is it a combination of the two? So I'm personally preparing to run one of these campaigns myself in my homebrew world of Primordia. And so the way I've answered these questions is this area that, that we're going to be ad in adventuring in is unexplored because recently there was a breaking of the world and a lot of the topography changed. A, a lot of 
Um, just basically the maps changed. And this is an area that has not been explored since then. So there might be some knowledge of what this area was like before the breaking. But as far as what it's like now, post-breaking, no one knows. And, and they're wanting to find out. Ben was very concerned about not having adventures take place in the town, in this home base settlement. He didn't want the focus of the campaign to turn toward urban adventure instead of exploration. And I don't know that he ever really explained why he felt this way. Uh, My best guess is just he wanted to do an exploration campaign and he didn't want to do an urban adventure uh, kind of campaign. So Ben said, you can have as many NPCs as you want in the town, but remember that the story isn't about them. Once players start talking to town NPCs, they will have a perverse desire to stay in town and look for adventure there. Town game was a dirty word in my West Marshes campaign. Town is not a source of information. You find things out by exploring, not sitting in town. Someone who explores should know more about what is out there than someone in town. So you may or may not consider having adventures or having game sessions that take place solely in the town to be a bad thing or as big of a deal as Ben did. Personally, I think this can be a thing of degree instead of a black and white either or situation. I don't think you need to be like, there can be no adventure in town. And and to avoid adventure in town, I'm not going to make interesting NPCs in town etc, etc, etc. I think you can uh, adjust that as a as a dial, you know, that goes from one to 10, as opposed to a switch that's just on or off. You can have interesting NPCs in the town. And if you want, you can have some sessions that t- take place in town without all the sessions having to take place in town and without the focus of the campaign changing from one of wilderness exploration to urban adventuring. You know, as a GM, you control everything in the world. So it really shouldn't be that hard to manage how much time the players spend in the town. And, you know, as far as wanting the players to have to adventure to get information, well, that problem has already been solved for you by the fact that there aren't any NPC adventurers. So there is no one in the town who knows what's out there because the only people adventuring out into the wilds are player characters. So there's no one to get that information from in the town anyway. And really, in my opinion, at the end of the day, if the players are having fun, who cares? You know, if you never leave the town, if you never leave the inn for the entire session, if the players had a good time, who cares, right? All that stuff you prepared out in the wilderness is still there. You can still use it, you know, you, you've just extended the amount of, of game time you got out of the prep that you've already done. So I think if you want to dissuade in-town play, that you can do this very naturally because the player characters are going to tend not to earn very much, if any, XP while they're in the town. So if you have a larger pool of players, you know, more than you can accommodate in one session, and you have this healthy sense of competition among the players that Ben talks about in his blog posts, then the players just naturally are not going to want to spend too much time in town, not adventuring and not earning XP that they could be earning out in the wilderness. 
Also, you know, they're not going to make any cool discoveries in town that they can brag about to the other players. So, you know, let's say you've got a pool of 10 players and tonight you're, you're playing with four of them and they decide to spend the entire session in town. Well, they're, they're not going to earn much or any XP. So they're, they're not going to advance their characters much at all. And they're, they're not going to make any cool discoveries. They're, they're not going to get any treasure. They're not going to learn anything that they can share with the other players. So when it comes time to go to your community forum and, and tell the other players what you did tonight, you're not going to have much of anything to tell them. And if you do have this sense of competition, these players are going to feel like, oh, we're behind now because we wasted a whole session basically doing nothing while the other players, you know, went out and adventured and gained a level and got some treasure and blah, 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 blah. So I think really um, this is going to manage itself. But, you know, if you, like Ben, are super concerned about not having adventures in the town, then you you can just really avoid that by moving the focus as much as you can to the wilderness stuff and not having NPC adventures. And, and ultimately, you know, the player character is going to have to leave town and, and do something. So you want to create this this home base. You want to flesh it out, you know, come up with some NPCs that are in the town, come up with what locations are in the town. And you can refer to the Dungeon Master's Guide section on creating settlements for this. And you can also refer to the episode of this podcast in which I discuss that part of the DMG on creating settlements. And that was episode. Let me check here really quick. Episode 158 of Game Master's Journey, Creating Settlements four-year campaign. So you you can check that out for more information. All right. So the next thing uh, to do, and you don't have to do these in this order. This is just the order I'm presenting it. But the other thing that you want to do to prepare to run one of these campaigns is you want to create a map of the area, of the campaign area, this this area around uh, this home settlement, this home base. And, and again, you know, there is guidance in the uh, DMG to help you with this. And I did an episode discussing this, episode 156, mapping your campaign. So you can refer to that for guidance on on how you do this. And, and this idea of having this local map on one piece of paper where it's showing um, with, with the home settlement in the begin in the middle, and it, this one map kind of shows how far they could go in one day's travel in all directions. And to start out with, that's that's really all you need. And as you go um, running this campaign, you can expand this map out more and more and more. So like a lot of campaigns, I think, preparing to run a West Marches campaign is, is very front-loaded when it comes to the prep. You're going to have a lot more prep to do in the beginning before you even start the campaign but as you get going and as the campaign goes on and on, you'll have less to do than you did in, in the beginning. It, it's very front loaded. However, unlike some other campaign styles, in a West Marches campaign, you're going to very often be able to recycle a lot of the content you've repaired and or prepared. Not only are you going to be able to recycle content that you prepared that um, you never use, like, like an area that the PCs never go to, but you're also going to be able to recycle content that you have used. 
So maybe the PCs find a dungeon somewhere and they explore it. Well, you're going to get to use that again. And I'll talk more about that later. So you're going to need one or more maps for this campaign. At the very least, you're going to want a map of the area that you as a GM can use as a reference. And really, you can get by with just this one map. And that's the only map you really have to have. The rest are kind of optional and icing on the cake. You should not give this map to the players or show it to them or allow them to look at it. The whole point of a West Marches campaign is for the players to explore the area and to discover what's out there. You basically negate this whole point if you just give them your GM map that already has everything on it that's 100% accurate and to scale. It's like, why go explore? We, we have a map that shows us everything that's out there. And the player characters would not have that information. The, the whole point of this campaign is your map, your GM map that you're using as a reference does not exist in the world. The whole point of this campaign is to create the map in world that you have as a GM out of the world. You know, you're like this omniscient being that can look over the world and see everything and know right where everything is. But the people in the world, the characters, non-player characters and player characters don't have that information. The whole point of this campaign is this is an unexplored region. Those maps don't exist. So it doesn't make any sense to give one to the players. Why, why would you do that? Now, you can, if you want, give the players a map, but this should not be your GM map. This should be a separate map that is just for the players that you create for the players. The map that you give the players, unlike your GM map, is an actual in-world object. This map is a map that exists in the setting that presumably the player characters have access to. And again, if they don't have access to the map, why would you give it to them? Um, so this could be like the tabletop map in Ben's campaign. So Ben talked about uh, in his uh, home base settlement, there was a tavern. And in that tavern was a large wood table that someone in the past had carved a map of the area into. And as the player characters adventured into the wilderness and discovered new things, they would come back and carve into this tabletop and add to the map. And this was the communal map that all the player characters adventuring in the area had access to. So you can do something similar like that for your campaign. So the PCs go out into the wilderness, they have adventures, they discover things, and then they come back to town and they add to this communal map. It could be a map carved into a tabletop. It could be a map on the wall of the tavern or, or whatever you want it to be. Now, you know, this is a map that exists in the town. It's a map that all the player characters should be able to have access to and add to. So, you know, by definition, it's not a map they can take with them when they go out in the wilderness. So, you could either say that, that they can make copies, you know, assuming the player characters have that ability and have the, the supplies to do that. Then they, you know, each party could make a copy of the map that they take with them. Or they might just have to rely on their memory of the map that they've studied in town when they go out. And, and you know, if you're going that route, you can have them make checks to see how well they remember information from that map. But keep in mind that this in-world map that you're showing to the players 
is a map created by NPCs in the world and it's not accurate. It's not reliable because, you know, these adventurers aren't out there um, with GPS. You know, they can't take me- accurate measurements and know exactly how many miles it is from A to B and things like that. And they can't have a bird's eye view of the landscape to draw the topography and things like that. So just even with a, a professional cartographer um, traveling with the PCs and, and the best supplies and everything, th- there's just going to be errors. It's going to be unavoidable. And then, you know, if, if the PCs are, are uh, not rolling well on their checks to to notice the details and put it on the map, then then those inaccuracies will get even greater. So a great way to start one of these campaigns, a great way to get it off the ground is in the first session to give the players a treasure map. And this basically is a very crude map. It's not the entire map. It's, it's just a crude map that shows the home base and shows one or maybe a few, two or three uh, possible adventure locations nearby. And it, it could be um, an actual map that you give the PCs that, that's drawn out that, that some NPC made that, that, you know, okay, here we've got the town and, and off to the, to the east, there's a fairy forest off to the north. There's, you know, the volcano and off to the south is this thing or, or whatever. So it could, it could be an actual map that you give them, or it could just be verbal information. Like they talk to people in the town and they tell them, oh, you know, uh, a day's march to the east is a fairy forest. And, you know, three days march to the north is a volcano. And, you know, so you don't have to give them an actual map. It could just be you giving them verbal descriptions that NPCs give them. And then maybe the the PCs or the players draw that as some kind of mapper, or maybe they don't, that'd be up to them. So this treasure map gives the PCs a direction for that first session, because you've given them maybe just one or maybe a few possible places they can go that sound interesting, that chances are good there'll be some adventure there. And, and it gives them, you know, somewhere to go to start with. And then they can pick one of those and they're off. And, and not only does that give them better direction than giving them a map with 20 options on it and, and lessen the time it will take them to decide which they're going to do. It also makes it easier for you to prepare for that first session because, you know, for the most part, the, the possibilities are whatever you give them. So if there's only one location on the map, then that's probably where they're going to go. And you've already prepared that. Or if there's three locations, then you only have to have three adventure areas prepared for that first session. So, you know, an alternative to, like I said, to giving the players this this physical treasure map, this kind of beginning state map, is just, you know, describe what they know of the area and what they've learned from other PC adventurers um, and, you know, what the NPCs can maybe tell them. And then it's up to the players to draw a map if they want based on that description you give them. But regardless of how you do it, whether you give them that beginning treasure map or uh, you describe things to them and they create that beginning treasure map, from that point forward, that map is the player's responsibility. It's up to them to update that map. And as a GM, you really want to resist the urge to correct any mistakes that the players might make when they're updating the map. The mistakes that they're going to make 
are an integral part of this style of campaign and what makes it a West Marches campaign. And those mistakes are going to provide for future adventure and surprises for either those player characters or other player characters that are going to rely on this map that the players are making for future expeditions. So at the beginning, you have your GM map of the area. And to start with, you really don't need more than what the players could could feasibly do in the first session. But the more of that you can kind of have um, prepared ahead of time, the more kind of ahead of the game you are and the less you'll have to scurry around preparing for future sessions as players decide where, where they want to go. So you've got your GM map and then you may or may not make a starting treasure map to give to the players. So, you, so you're either going to give them one or they're, you're going to make them do it and just describe things to them. In addition to that, you also may want to make maps for the various encounter areas and dungeons that you come up with that are nearby that the player characters may explore. Again, these maps are there for your reference and are not maps that should be shown to the players because again, it's their responsibility to make maps. That's part of what they're doing in the West Marches is is mapping the area. And that includes any dungeons or, or anything else that they might find. So as a side note, I personally think that the West Marches style of campaign works best with theater of the mind play as opposed to using grids and minis. Now, if you want to use grids and minis, be sure that you use, however you do it, use some kind of fog of war so that you're not showing the players more than what their characters know. So don't show them a grid of the entire dungeon. Just give them the room that they're in and that's it. Um, But, you know, if you do that, just understand that you're kind of missing the point of this campaign. The, the point is for the players to be responsible for the mapping, mapping the area, mapping encounters, all that stuff. And, and you're completely defeating that if you're giving them battle maps, because now they they have accurate maps of, of this dungeon that you gave them that their characters did not create. And so there goes any chances for mistakes or inaccuracies or things that they missed or anything like that. And, you know, you're, you're kind of missing the point. Also, you know, as in any uh, game that you run, not just West Marches, you know, the time that it takes to set up these maps and the minis is time taking away from from your gaming. And also, you're going to be giving the players a tell as far as when they're doing something you planned or not, right? If every time there's an encounter or every time they enter a dungeon or whatever, you always have grids and minis and battle maps ready Um, If they suddenly go into a place and you don't have that, then the players know that, you know, they're they're off book, they're off script. They've done something that you didn't anticipate or you didn't plan for. And I don't know about you, but as a GM, I like to avoid tells like that. I I don't want the players seeing behind the curtain in that way. It it just destroys immersion and suspension of disbelief. You, You don't want to show that kind of thing to the players. All right, so regarding um, these different encounter areas or and or dungeons that the players can discover, Ben says, I could pour tons of detail into wilderness maps because I knew characters would be returning to those areas frequently. So again, this is the the front-loaded aspect of the campaign. It's like, yeah, you got to make this, this wilderness map, this area map to begin with for, for you, the GM, 
And that's going to take some time, but you're going to be using it through the whole campaign. Even after some players had mostly explored a region, they still had to trek through it to get to farther away areas. Plus, since there were lots of players, there was always someone going to an area for the first time. Lots of return on investment. And that's, I think, one of the strong points of this style of campaign is you do get to reuse stuff a lot more, I think, than you do in a lot of campaigns. Interior maps of dungeons, ruins, etc. were also a very good investment because even if a party came through and wiped out all the creatures, the floor plan's not going to change. If the players come back a season later and explore the dungeon again or another group of players does, who knows what will have taken up residence in the meantime. Wipe out the entrenched kobolds and next spring, the molds and fungi that were a minor hazard before have spread into whole colonies of mushroom warriors. Drive the pirates out of the sunken fort and its lonely halls become the hunting ground for the fishy devils from the sea. Or maybe the whole place is just empty. These evolving dungeons were a key feature of the West Marches. So that's really awesome when you think about it, you know. So you could create a dungeon and you stock it with monsters and you come up with its story and all that good stuff. And the players come, they adventure through it, you know, maybe they kill everything, maybe they don't, and then they leave. And in most campaigns, that, that'd be the end of the story, right? But in a West Marches campaign, especially if you're using a pool of players and, and having multiple groups, you know, another group of players might want to come check this place out too. Or maybe the original group of players will want to come back someday. And, and you're also going to encourage this uh, using another technique that, that I'll explain here in a minute. So you're going to have players coming back to this dungeon again at some point in the future, probably. And in preparation for that, you don't need to make the map again, right? You already have a map of the dungeon. That's not going to change. Or there might be some, some changes to it. But overall, you, you've got the map. And you just need to decide what happens to this location as time goes on you know you you know okay these monsters aren't here anymore because the player characters killed them and think about well what happens you know nature abhors a vacuum so chances are someone or something's going to move in to to take over that area eventually and the next time the player characters come here it's mostly the same floor plan but they could have very different encounters than they did the last time Ben also re recommended that when you're designing your dungeons and your encounter areas, that you design them with um, treasure rooms or locked rooms or pockets of danger that are of a higher threat than the other things in, in the dungeon. And the idea is that a, a solid party might be able to wipe out the primary monsters in a dungeon but there should always be spots that are a lot harder to clear on those rare occasions when a group does manage to clear the entire dungeon or crack a treasure room. They'll stand on the tables in the tavern and cheer, not in some small part to brag to the other players who weren't on that expedition. And if they don't, if there are parts of the dungeon that they can't clear because it's, it's too much for them, then that's a reason for them or someone else to come back at some other time. So another thing that you're going to want for a West Marches campaign, in addition to having encounter areas that you've come up with, is also encounter tables. 
or wandering monster tables. And these are tables that you create for different areas in the area that you can use to generate encounters, whether you're doing that randomly or you're using that to populate a, a hexer or whatever. Ben says, by creating a unique wandering monster table for each wilderness area, for instance, one for the frog marshes, one for the notch fells, etc., I could carefully sculpt the precise flavor for each region. It made me think very carefully about what each area was like, what critters lived there, and what kind of terrain hazards made sense. Anything from bogs to rock slides to exposure to marsh fever. They were effectively the definition for each ter territory. So yeah, and, and you know, when you're creating these tables, there are in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide in the appendices, there are uh, monsters grouped in terrain for you that can be a great resource uh, in creating these tables. And also, if you want to use monsters from Bolo's Guides, there's a table uh, based, by, based on terrain in the back of that book for those monsters as well. Most tables also had one or more results that told you to roll on the table for an adjacent region instead. If you're in the Minol Valley, you might run afoul of a goblin hunting party that came over the pass from Cradle Wood. The odds were weighted based on how likely creatures were to wander between the regions. And there are there's guidance for making encounter tables in the DMG. Um, we'll probably get to it eventually in our DMG discussion episodes. Um, but they, you know, they recommend when you're making an encounter table, not to use an encounter table where you just roll a percentile. Well, I guess you could do it with percentile dice, but you don't want to make a table where you just roll a D20 to see what happens. You want to, um, use multiple dice. Like you roll a D12 and a D8 or something like that, or you can do it with percentile dice and, and deciding, you know, the spreads for each result. And, and the reason for that is so that you can have some encounters that are um, more likely to happen and other encounters that are less likely. So when you roll like a D12 and a D8, you get a nice bell curve, um, the values towards the middle. So D12 plus D8, you can get a, a value anywhere from, from 2 to 20, right? So the values toward the mid middle of that spread are more likely to happen. The values at the outside of the spread, like 2 or 20, are less likely to happen. And so if you make your tables in that way, then then you can have or, or you can do it with percentile like, oh, this this encounter has, you know, it can happen between a five and a 10 while this encounter can happen between a 10 and a 20. Right. Like you can do it with percentile too, however you want to do it. But if you set up your table in that way, you can have encounters that are more common to come up and then you can have some encounters that are more rare. And these could be like Ben's talking about here, they could be monsters from an adjacent area that are roaming, or they could be especially powerful monsters that you don't want the PCs to encounter all the time, but, but can be a possibility. For all encounters, there was also a chance of getting two results instead of one. Roll twice and come up with a situation combining the true, the two. <laughs> it might be a bear trapped in quicksand or a bear that comes across you while you're trapped in quicksand. Combining two wandering monsters results is surefire way to come up with an interesting encounter. And yeah, in your encounter tables, like, like Ben's kind of saying here, should include more than just monster encounters for the PCs to fight. Should include uh, terrain hazards, uh, natural events, uh, maybe NPCs that the player characters might encounter 
and things like that. All kinds of interesting things that could happen. Just having these detailed wandering monster tables at my fingertips meant I was always ready when players decided to do a little light exploring. These tables got used over and over and over again. Players never saw these wandering monster tables, of course, but they got to know the land very, very well. They knew that camping on the battle moors was begging for trouble, particularly near the full moon. They knew that it was wise to live and let live in the Golden Hills, and they knew to keep an ear out for goblin horns and cradle wood. Becoming wise in the ways of the West Marches was part of their job as players and a badge of merit when they succeeded. So, you know, that's a great point. You know, you're never going to show these tables to the players, but as they get experience in the area, they're going to, through their experiences, piece together what types of monsters they tend to encounter in different areas. And that's all part of the fun. And that's all part of what we're trying to do with this kind of campaign. Now, how you use those tables, of course, is up to you. You can roll on them randomly during play and generate encounters on the fly. You could roll on them uh, in preparation for a session and, and give yourself some time to think about which encounters you want to use. Um, you could just use the tables as a guide to select encounters, however you want to do it. And, you know, there's no rule saying you have to do it the same way every time. But however you do it, these encounter tables that you make are going to be a very valuable tool for you that you're going to use throughout the entire campaign. And again, this is another part of this that is very front loaded at the beginning. Yeah, you got a lot of tables to make. Of course, you don't have to make them all right away. You know, for the first session, you only need the tables for the areas that the player characters are likely to go to. But once you get all those tables made, they're made. You don't need to change them. You don't need to mess with them. And you're now using them every session for the rest of the campaign and probably for multiple campaigns if you run more than one. So Ben talks about what he calls danger gradients or paths of exploration. He says the West Marches was intended to be a campaign environment where characters would start at low level first, usually, and then push farther and farther out into the wilds as they advanced. When I was creating the game map, I marked each region with a specific encounter level or CR range to gauge the kind of threats that were normally encountered there. The logical pattern was a rising gradient of danger. The farther you get from the safety of town, the more dangerous the lands become, which makes sense. In most cases, there were no steep changes in encounter level as you moved from region to region. If you were in a CR3 area, an adjacent region would probably be CR4 or 5 at most. This makes good gameplay, but also matches game world logic. The goblins in the mountains don't magically stay on their side of the fence. Some wander into Cradle Wood, the adjacent region, and some even go as far as the Battle Moors, the region beyond that. Distance was generally walking distance, not as the Sturge flies. So the far side of a mountain range might be quite a bit more dangerous since it was effectively, quote, farther from town. Mountains, rivers, valleys, and similar terrain features divided up the West Marches, creating separate paths of exploration. So this is something you can think about when you're making your area map. Think about these paths of exploration, like pretend you're a player character, you're starting at the, the town, and you're going to go in a given direction looking for adventure, and you can use uh, terrain, things like mountains and rivers and cliffs and things like that, to kind of channel 
where the PCs go on a given path of exploration. You know, they're not likely to climb over a mountain if they can just walk through a pass, right? So you can guide them using terrain features and, and you know, you're going to have multiple paths of exploration because they can leave town and go in any direction, presumably. All right, where were we? Players were free to jump around and explore wherever they liked, but there was a tendency to return to previously explored areas just to see what the next region out looked like. So if a party started out exploring into the Willwood, they would probably push on into the Frog Marshes after that, and then the Dwarven Caves after that, and then Notch Falls after that, each region harder than the last. But if they explored north into the moors, they could push in the Cradlewood, Ghostwood, then the Goblin's Teeth, and so on. So you see each direction is kind of a different path of uh, areas that they're going to explore one after another as they go farther and farther from town. Each region also held tidbits that revealed details about the farther regions. By the time you reach the ruins in Harbor Wood, you've hit lots of clues pointing at their druidic origins. So this is a way, even in you know this very sandboxy style of campaign, you can still use things like foreshadowing by, like he says, having clues to farther out regions um, sprinkled around the nearer regions that the players can find. Multiple exploration paths also meant that a player could level up exploring one direction, die horribly somewhere high level. Sorry, Mike, two hydras was cruel, he says, that I sense that's a... Uh, something that happened in this campaign and then start a new first level character and explore completely different areas, which is really cool, right? You, you avoid that, that common thing in, in like MMOs where every time you begin a character, you, you have to go through the same encounter areas, you know, this way you, you don't have that problem. You didn't have to go back to the same low level areas because there were multiple low level areas and multiple medium level areas and multiple high level areas and so on to choose from. The players never knew I had these potential exploration paths planned out. They just pushed farther and farther into the wilds in whatever direction they started going. So this is all, you know, in the design of the campaign. And a lot of this is going to come into play when you're making the area map. So just think about, you know, using these danger gradients, you know, having the areas closest to the town be lower CR, and then things get more and more challenging the farther out you go. And then using natural terrain features to create these multiple different paths of exploration through those different gradients. So that way, you know, depending, do you, do you leave town and go north, south, east, or west will result in very different experiences that you might have. So the next thing Ben talks about in his blogs is what he calls danger pockets. And this is getting back to, to what we talked about a little bit when we were talking about encounter areas and dungeons and having uh, tougher nuts to crack within them. Not everything in a region obeyed the overall encounter level or, or CR. I, th I think he wrote this blog in the third edition days. So um, that's why he keeps talking about encounter level. How exciting would that be? Some regions had sharp pockets of danger, like the Barrow Mounds in the middle of the otherwise pleasant Willwood. By logic, those pocket encounter areas had to be either sealed away or isolated somehow. Otherwise, they would change the CR of the region around them. If the whites stay in their mounds, the rest of the wood is still relatively safe. If the whites go roaming through the forest, the Willwood should just have a higher CR, right? So usually these pockets were either easy to find and well known 
or hard to find and completely unknown. And, and you can do both, you know, in different situations. This kept players from just bumping into extreme danger with no warning. They either knew about the danger spot and could avoid it if they wanted, or they didn't know about it and would only find it with searching, in which case they knew they were unearthing something unusual. If they were smart, that would be enough to get them to proceed with caution. And that's another big theme of a West March's campaign is it rewards intelligent play and it punishes unintelligent play. So it's going to reward players and player characters who are careful, who gather information, who look before they leap. Dungeon design was also a little different from normal. Dungeons generally had the same or near uh, CR as the region they were in. But to make things interesting, I designed many of the dungeons with treasure rooms that were harder than the standard CR, well hidden or just plain impossible to crack. So even when a party could slog through and slaughter everything they met, there was a spot or two they couldn't clear. Whether it was the fearsome black door, the ghoul-infested crypts of the ruined monastery, or the perilous Hall of Swords. They usually had to give up and make a strong mental note to come back later when they were higher level. Lots of times they never came back. They really wanted to. They talked about it all the time, but they never got around to it because they were busy exploring new territory. Rather than being frustrating, um, hang on. Rather than being frustrated with each new quote incomplete, it seemed to make players even more interested in the game world. Was there actually good treasure in the treasure rooms? Yes, really good treasure. Every time the players cracked one, it just made them more certain that all those other sealed or well-guarded rooms they couldn't beat were chock full of goodness. And this is a fantastic technique that Ben used. You know, so for instance... There's a creature in one room of the dungeon that's way more powerful than everything else. So maybe the dungeon is, you know, ranging for up to, say, CR5. And then one room in the dungeon has a CR10 creature in it. And it's just beyond the party's ability to handle at that point that they're exploring that dungeon. So hopefully the party avoids this creature and returns to town with tales of their exploits. However, they'll also share that there was one section of the dungeon that they couldn't explore because of the powerful monster that was there. So now the same players or different players in your player pool could at some later date form a party of higher level characters and go check out that room. And again, you know, the rest of the dungeon has evolved since then, right? It's not just an empty dungeon anymore. So it's not just that room. It's it's whatever else has come into the dungeon since then. Or, you know, so, so this could be the same player characters returning later or a different group of characters that are higher level returning sooner. So, you know, not only can you do this with encounter areas or dungeons, you can also do it with areas on the map. So, you know, you might determine that this area closest to town is, is only populated with up to CR3 monsters, but there could be a single or a few monsters in the area that are much higher CR, like maybe some kind of apex predator. And the idea is that the PCs will learn about this threat, like there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex running around in the woods. Um, beforehand, you know, maybe someone in the town tells them or whatever, so that they can they can know to avoid it. And, and like Ben said, you know, with these things, you either make it something that they can find out about ahead of time so they can avoid it, 
or you make it something that's difficult to find so that just the fact that it's difficult to find is kind of a clue to the players of, hey, this this might be something um, a little bit more than what we're used to. So, you know, in the early days of the campaign, the, the PCs are going to have to avoid the Tyrannosaurus Rex that rampages around because they can't deal with it. But, you know, later on when they're higher level, they, they might go hunting it so it won't be a threat to other uh, newer adventurers in the area. So, you know, that that's definitely a a great way to approach this, I think. And I I just I really like it because I like I like it because of the kind of realism that it creates or or at least a sense of realism where, you know, you're you're traveling through the wilderness and and yeah, you know, most of the things you encounter seem to be um at or below a certain power level, but there's always a chance that you run across something that's that's way beyond that. And that seems realistic to me and makes it seem less like we're, we're playing in a game world. On the other hand, the other thing I I really like about it is the, the game aspect of it, of, you know, you can return to earlier areas that you explored earlier in your, your career. And there's a reason to go back there at higher level. Um, And there's, you know, uh, threats you can, you can face and treasure that you can find. And, and I think that's really cool. And it's just an, another way that you're going to be able to recycle content in the West marches. This is Shane from the total party thrill podcast. And you're listening to Lex Starwalker on game master's journey. I want to take a minute to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. It's because of the patrons that all the listeners of Game Master's Journey enjoy a bonus episode every month, as well as the Game Master's Journey live stream. I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier five patron, Steve. Let's hear it for Steve. Yeah. Yes. You the man. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. All right, returning to our West Marches discussion. So we've talked about how you can set up a West Marches campaign. So now let's start talking about how you would actually go about running one of these bad boys. So one piece of advice that Ben gave as far as um, how to approach running the game at the table is as the GM to appear passive. So the world may be active, but you, the GM, should appear to be passive. You're not killing the party. The dire wolf is. It's not you. It's the world. Encourage the players to take action, but leave the choices up to them. Rolling dice in the open helps a lot with this. So that's a way you could approach it. 
The sandbox game really demands that you remain neutral about what the players do. It's their decisions that will get them killed or grant them fame and victory, not yours. That's the whole idea. Provide an easy lead to get new players started. So this is the treasure map that we've talked about. Once players are out exploring, each new discovery motivates them to search more. But getting them started can be an issue. So every time Ben introduced a batch of new players, he would give them this very basic treasure map that vaguely pointed to somewhere in the West Marches and then let them go look for it. Whether it was the dwarven treasure beyond burying or the gold buried beneath the red willow, a no-brainer go-look-for-treasure-here clue gets the players out of town and looking around. Of course, once the players are out in the wilds, they may find that getting to that treasure is much harder than it looks. Ben says, let the players take over. Don't write game summaries. Don't clean up the shared map. Don't edit the map. Don't fix the map for them. You want the players to do all these things. If you do it, you're just going to train them not to do it. And I, I think that's a great point. He also says competition is what it's all about. Fair rewards, scarcity, bragging rights. These are the things that push the game higher. You could have a solo West Marches game with just one group doing all the exploring, and it would probably be a fun and pleasant affair, but it's nothing compared to the frenzy you'll see when players know other players are out there finding secrets and taking treasure that they could be getting. If only they got their butts out of the tavern. And and this is great, you know, and I've I kind of wonder about the competition aspect of it, um, how how valuable I'm going to find that in, in my own campaigns. But I think definitely if, if you have a pool of players more than what you can accommodate at the table, that this feeling of competition is going to be going to be really cool and is going to be a fun aspect of this campaign. It's going to make it different than, than other things you've played because again, you know, it's up to the players when they get together, when they play, how often they play, um, and what they do. So you could have one player that plays every week, maybe plays multiple times a week. Um, anytime this player is in a party, he's very uh, motivated to get everybody out in the wilderness doing stuff. So they tend to find a lot of treasure. They tend to earn a lot of XP. And this player's character is gaining levels very steadily. You may have another player who, for whatever reason, doesn't play as often. Maybe he only plays once a week, week or once every other week or once a month or whatever. And maybe when he plays, he's not super motivated. And maybe some of their sessions, they never leave town. So this player character is not gaining levels as quickly. And as time goes on, that that spread between those two characters grows. And the the player who's not playing as often or who's not, you know, being as productive when they're playing you know, this competition creates a motivation for them to play more or for them to get more done while they're playing. And I think it, it can be very useful. Ben recommends that you require scheduling on your forum or, or whatever you're using for your community hub for the campaign. It doesn't matter whether a bunch of players agreed to go on an adventure when they were out bowling. They have to announce it on the forum. This prevents the game from splintering into multiple separate games. If you notice clicks forming, you can make a rule requiring parties to mix after two adventures. 
Conversely, if you notice players being dropped from follow-up sorties too often, just because some people can't wait to play, you can require parties to stay together for two adventures. This forces a little more long-time strategy in party selection, less greedy opportunism. Opportunism, if I could say it right. Season to taste. So yeah, you know, those are some ways that, that you can manage that if you need to. Fear the social monster. Even more so than many games, West Marches is a social beast. In normal games, players have an established place in the group. They know they are supposed to show up every Tuesday to play. They don't have to think about that or worry about whether they belong in the group. On the other hand, West Marches is a swirling vortex of ambition and insecurity. How come no one replied when I tried to get a group together last week? Why didn't anybody invite me to raid the ogre cave? And so on and so on, ad infinitum. The thrilling success or catastrophic failure of your West Marches game will largely hinge on the confidence or insecurity of your player pool. Buckle up. So again, you know, going more into the community forum, you know, having your players be active on this forum is really important. And, you know, if you need a metric by which to decide uh, which players to allow in your West Marches campaign versus which not, um, I think this is the metric to use. Choose players who you know will be active on the forums because um, players not being active on the forums is just going to uh, derail the whole thing. It's not going to work if the players aren't participating on the forums. Player sharing information was a critical part of the West March's design because there was a large pool of players. The average person was in about a third of the games or to look at it the other way, each player missed two thirds of the games. Add in that each player was in a random combination of sessions not even playing with a consistent subset of players, and pretty quickly each player is seeing a unique fraction of the game. No one is having the same game experience, which sounds philosophically interesting, but is bad news if you want everyone to feel like they are in the same game. Sharing information was essential to keeping everyone on the same page and in the same game. Players were strongly encouraged to chat about their adventures between games. This discussion theoretically mirrored chatter between characters who had made it safely back to town. Did you stumble into the Barrow Mounds and Will Wood and barely escape with your life? Warn other adventurers so they can steer clear. Did you slay wolves on the moors until the snow was red with blood? Brag about it so everyone knows how tough you are. What started off as humble anecdotes evolved into elaborate game summaries, detailed stories written by the players recounting each adventure or misadventure. Instead of just sharing information and documenting discoveries, like we found ancient standing stones north of the Golden Hills, game summaries turned into tributes to really great and some really tragic game sessions, and eventually became a creative outlet in their own right. Players enjoyed writing them, and players enjoyed reading them, which kept players thinking about the game even when they weren't playing. And I think one of the best metrics of the health of your RPG campaign is how much the players are or are not thinking about and talking about the game between sessions. An intentional side effect of both game summaries and the shared map was that they whetted people's appetite to play. 
When people heard about other players finding the abbot's study in a hidden room of the ruined monastery or saw on the map that someone else had explored beyond Centaur Grove, it made them want to get out there and play too. Soon they were scheduling their own game sessions. Like other aspects of West Marches, it was careful allowance of competitiveness and even jealousy to encourage more gaming. It was also important to me as a GM that players share knowledge because otherwise I knew that no one would put the pieces together. Remember how I said there was no plot? Well, there wasn't, but there was history and interconnected details. Tidbits found in one place could shed light elsewhere. Instead of just being interesting detail, these clues lead to concrete discoveries if you pay attention. If you deciphered the runes in the depths of the Dwarven Mines, you could learn that the Exiles established another hidden fortress in the valleys to the north. Now go look for it. Or maybe you'll learn how to get past the Black Door or figure out what a treasure beyond bearing actually is. Put together the small clues hidden all across the map and you can uncover the big scores, the secret bonus levels. So that's that's really awesome stuff. And honestly, um, I feel like Ben's blog really speaks for itself here, which is why I pretty much quoted it to you. You know, the the forum or whatever you're using for your community hub is the hub of the campaign. You, your campaign will make it or break it, succeed or fail based on how well that's implemented and how well the the players use it. So, you know, you really want to think about that as you're recruiting players and as you're planning the campaign and as you're explaining the campaign to players, and you know, I would make this very clear to players before they agree to play in the campaign and before you agree to let them play in the campaign, let them know that, you know, a big part of this is this participation in the community hub. And if they're not willing to do that or they're not able to do that, this probably isn't a good fit for them. On the other hand, you're going to have players where this is their bread and butter. And, and I've um, I've had players like this in my games. Uh, Nathan, who played in my Tyranny of Dragons campaign, would would probably eat something like this up because he always was coming up with detailed backstories for his characters and and all kinds of stuff. And you know, a player like that is going to love this and is going to love recounting their party's adventures to the the larger community. And it's going to be awesome. So you really want to focus on getting players like that as opposed to the players that you never hear from in between game sessions. They're not the great players to have in a campaign like this. All right, so another important aspect of a West Marches campaign that makes it different than a lot of other campaigns you might run or play is that in a West Marches campaign, logistics really matters. And this is yet another way that this is a very old school kind of campaign because in you know, more modern RPGs and in modern iterations of D&D, uh, logistics have, have become less and less of something that the, ga- that the games uh, concern themselves with. And a lot of games don't even worry about things like ammunition or food and water or things like that. But in a West Marshes campaign, you do want to worry about those things. So a big conflict in West Marshes adventures is humans versus nature. So things like food and water, carrying capacity, navigation, getting lost become really important in this style of campaign. Survival is a crucial skill for the group to have. Not everybody has to have it, but 
God, you really want to have, especially at lower levels, you really want to have someone in the, in the party that has survival. And a ranger greatly enhances a party's ability to explore without running out of food and water or getting lost. So if you normally in your games don't track food and water, ammunition, things like that, you really want to in this type of campaign. Planning for expeditions and being properly prepared and supplied is a big part of the difficulty of the campaign, especially at low levels. Also, making this matter at low levels makes it even more rewarding for the players as they gain abilities as they level up that overcome these obstacles. For instance, the ability to cast, create food and water. Once the players have access to that, they don't have to worry about food and water anymore and things just got easier. Or learning the spell teleport. Now traveling isn't as difficult as it used to be. You still got to get where you're going, but once you're done adventuring, you don't have to travel all the way back to town. You can just teleport there. So by making these things matter early on, it sweetens the reward of leveling up and getting these higher level abilities that eliminate these difficulties that the players had to struggle with at lower levels. Now, a possible issue in a campaign like this, which focuses very much on the exploration and the combat tiers of the game, is that the social tier could be neglected if you're not careful. You know, it could be that, that you find social interaction taking a back seat. But I believe that as a GM, you can mitigate this by populating the environment that the players are exploring with intelligent monsters and other NPCs that can be interacted with and not making every encounter have to turn into a fight. And the more you use intelligent monsters and NPCs, the more you make this possible. I mean, you encounter, uh, I don't know, like a, like a rabid bear in the woods, unless you got a, a druid or a ranger or someone else skilled with animal handling or not animal handling. Um, what would that be? Probably survival. I think because animal handling actually only applies to trained animals. Um, but unless you've got someone in the party that can do that, you know, the, the rabid bear is something you either fight or flee. Like there's, there's not really a chance for parlay there, but if you encounter something like a goblin and you can speak its language, then you have other options available to you. So, you know, I, I, I think it's definitely true that if, if you're not paying attention, the social tier could be neglected and for your group, that may not be a problem if you don't have players that enjoy the social tier of the game. But if you don't want it to be neglected, I, I think you can avoid it. Just got to think about what you're doing. I think a really important thing to understand about the West Marches when you're running it as a DM is that the West Marches are not, quote, fair. <laughs> so you as a DM, in preparation for this campaign, you come up with a map, you populate it with encounter areas and monsters, you use area encounter tables to uh, either generate random encounters that the party experiences or to use them as guidance on what may or may not be in an area at a given time. So this means that, you know, it's set. You know, this isn't one of these uh, campaigns where you just make it up as you go and whatever door the, the, the PCs pick doesn't matter because the MacGuffins behind whatever door they pick or the encounter you want them to have is behind whatever door they pick. I mean, it's a topic for another day. If that's even a, a GMing style that you want to emulate, I would argue in most cases not. 
But um, in this campaign, that that's not the way it works because, again, it's the players against the environment. It's not the players against you, the GM. You know, so so in a campaign where the GM is just making things up as he goes or he's really railroading the players to certain encounters and their choices really don't matter. Those are uh, campaigns or adventures where it's really the players against the GM. In this kind of campaign, it's not. It's the players against the environment because you as a GM have determined before you ever sat down to play with the players what's there. You already know what's there and it's not going to change based on what the players do and don't do. Just because they are not prepared for the red dragon doesn't mean that the red dragon is magically not there anymore. The red dragon is still there. If they're foolish enough to, to go into his territory unprepared, then you know they might be making new characters pretty soon. But again, it's, it's them versus the environment. It's not them versus the GM. So it's already predetermined what's in a given hex. It's already predetermined what's in a given dungeon. It's already predetermined what's on a given encounter table. And that, you know, once the game starts, that's now out of your hands. And so if, if they go into the dungeon and they go into the secret room that has a really powerful monster in it and they can't escape and they die, that's on the players. It's not on you as a GM. You know, they were defeated by the encounter. They were defeated by the environment. They weren't defeated by the DM. And you might say that's... Um, semantics, but I, I think it's a really important distinction and it's going to make a real change in the feel of this, of this style of campaign, both from the player side of, of the table and from the GM side of the table. So what the players encounter has nothing to do with what level they are, has nothing to do with what resources they have as a party and has nothing to do with what they quote can handle. It's just what is, it's what's there. It's what you've decided is there already. And they're controlling what they encounter by where they go. Ben makes an interesting note that this allows the GM to be on the player's side during play. Since the encounters are either predetermined or determined by a role on a table, they are what they are. You're not deciding what the encounter is. It is what it is. The DM can focus on running the encounters and environment fairly. So you just want to be fair, just be fair. But other than that, can be on the player's side. This avoids the, that feeling of the players playing against the DM. The players are playing against the West Marches. They're playing against the environment. They're not playing against the DM. Ben says, as I've said before, and any of the players will tell you, West Marches was dangerous by design. Danger encourages teamwork because you have to work together to survive. It also forces players to think. If they make bad decisions, they get wiped out. Or at least chased into the swamp like little sissy girls. A recurring game quote from Ben's game. It's an open secret that every GM fudges sometimes. Or glosses over closely checking roles and just hand waves things. It's part of the art to do it well and gracefully. There's no such thing in the West Marches. I rolled all my dice in the open, not behind the screen. If the dice said you sucked a critical, a critical, you did suck. <laughs> did this lead to a looming specter of sudden death? Yes, but having strong and fairly unyielding consequences combined with a consistent, logical environment meant the players really could make intelligent decisions that determine their fate. They really did hold their own lives in their hands. 
so let's think about this for a second, right? Because you've already determined what's in a given area. You're not changing it based on what the players do because you're using pre-generated tables to generate your random encounters. And these tables are crafted from a point of view of logic and environment and you know what would be here versus what not. There is a logic. There is an internal consistency to what the players are experiencing and they can figure that out and they can use that to make better decisions. And that is going to lead to a much greater feeling of satisfaction on the part of the players when they're successful than in a campaign where whatever they choose is the right answer or where the GM just, um, you know, is kind of manipulating things on the fly so that the players are only successful no matter what they do. You know, they're, you know, it's difficult, if not impossible to pull that off for very long without the players figuring it out. And once they figure it out, there's no longer any sense of accomplishment when you do something because you know, the GM just handed it to you. So Ben says, of course, for this all to work, the sandbox has to be built with internal logic and consistency that the players can decipher. So that's why, you know, you really want to think about what you're doing when you're designing the map and those encounter tables so that everything makes sense so that as the players are experiencing this, they can start to make um, deductions and inferences. And those are going to hold up because there is that internal consistencies. So players and their characters are going to need to develop important skills like stealth and threat assessment, as well as endeavoring to be as well informed as possible, for instance, by communicating with the other players on the forum. Ben says, an interesting side effect was that the West Marches put me, the GM, in a more neutral position. I wasn't playing any scheming NPCs or clever plots, so I wasn't portraying intelligent opposition and didn't have any ulterior motives. The environment was already set, so instead of making up challenges that matched the party, I was just dutifully reporting what they found wherever they went. When I rolled, I would freely tell the players what bonuses or target numbers they were up against, so the players looked at the dice to see the result, not me. In many of the West March's games, it really felt like the PCs versus the world with me as an impartial observer. The players didn't see my hand, just the game world, which is about the most any GM can hope for. And this is another uh, aspect of the West Marches. It's really appealing to me personally and, and that I'm really excited about experiencing as, as I run my, my own West Marches campaign because this is very much how I like to approach a game as a GM. I like to be neutral. I like to be fair. And I like the success or failure of the players to be really based on what they do and the luck of the dice and not on, on my whim as a GM. And this style of campaign, this framework really, you know, sets it up that, that you can do that. And, you know, you, I, I think his idea of rolling in the open is, is a really good one. And, you know, like, like kind of Christopher and I talked about last week, you know, you just want to think about that because there, there are consequences either way. If, if you roll out in the open all the time, it's going to be a deadlier campaign because if a critical is going to kill a player character, you can't fudge it and say it was a normal hit or fudge the amount of damage it did because it's all out there in front of everybody. So 
there there's going to be no possibility of you fudging things to prevent character death and, and things like that. So, you know, that's fine. You just want to know that that's what you're getting yourself into. Where, on the other hand, if you roll behind the screen sometimes or all the times, then you do leave yourself that little bit of wiggle room where you can fudge things if you need to. You have a little bit more narrative control in that way. But um, it, it also might take away a little bit of that sense of you being neutral and impartial. Because, you know, the, the, the players don't know if or when you're fudging or not. Right. So so the players might perceive you as being partial either against them or for them if they think that you're fudging and, and whether or not you actually are fudging is, is really not relevant. What's relevant is the perception of the players. Personally, um, how I plan to approach this is what Matthew Colville has recommended on at least one of his videos on his channel, which is using a combination of, of the two. You know, like I said, there's pros and cons to both either rolling in front of or behind the screen. And by combining the two, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You know, if you're rolling in front of the screen all the time, there's no chance for you to fudge or change results or, or anything like that. Um, if you're always rolling behind the screen, then you can lose some of that suspense where, you know, the players are, are watching this die roll to see what happens. So what Matt does is he combines the two. He rolls out in the open at times where he wants it to be really suspenseful or really dramatic or where he wants the players to know without a shadow of a doubt that he's not fudging this role. And just by rolling in front of the screen, it adds suspense to that role or to that encounter because the players know this is it. You know, what the die says is, is what it says. And there's, there's no going back from this. Right. And then he will sometimes roll behind the screen and, you know, what he said is the trick is to roll behind the screen more often than you, quote, need to. So don't just roll behind the screen when you want to be able to fudge, because then, you know, the, the players can make the correlation and they're like, oh, well, Lex only rolls behind the screen when he wants to fudge something. So you want to roll behind the screen often enough that it's not unusual when you do so. And the, you know, the players aren't sitting there metagaming whether or not you're fudging because you're rolling behind the screen. So, you know, I would just roll behind the screen most of the time and then save rolling in front of the screen for those moments you want to be really dramatic or there's times you want the players to know um, that it's all about the role and you're not going to step in as a GM and interpret it or anything like that. So if you're digging the kind of open rolling thing and, and really putting this as much in the player's hands as possible, even though it may lead to more lethality, you could even do that with the random encounter tables. So you could either make the rolls in the open. So, that, so when you roll on the table to see if they have an encounter and if so, what it is, you could roll those dice where the players can see them, or you could even let the players roll. And I've seen uh, GMs do this where it's like, okay, um, you've determined, you know, you roll a, a, uh, D20 and on a roll of 19 or higher, there's an encounter. So you could just ask a player to say, Hey, roll a D20 for me. Eventually they're going to figure out that a 19 or higher means an encounter, at least in this area. And then when you want to roll on the table, you can have the players roll that. And that will further, um, express to them that, Hey, you know, this, I'm not choosing an encounter. You guys are choosing it by what you roll randomly. So that's, 
a way you can approach that. And again, you don't always have to do things the same way. So just as you can combine rolling in front of and behind the screen, you could also combine this. So sometimes you could roll for encounters behind the screen or you just pick something or whatever you do. Sometimes you could roll for them in front of the screen and sometimes you could have the players roll just whatever um, feels right in that particular moment, whatever you think would work best for that particular scene. So, um, yeah, so that's basically uh, his pointers and, and my thoughts on how to run a West Marches campaign. And as uh, anticipated, this, this has been a fairly lengthy discussion. So in the next part of, of the series, I'm going to start talking about um, different ways that you might kind of change things up a bit with this. Different variants you might try, different ways you could t- tweak this formula to get um, to get the West Marches experience, you know, in general, but to more tailor it to what you want to do in your particular campaign. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for episode 167 of Game Master's Journey. If you would like to get a hold of me, please visit the website starwalkerstudios.com. There you can find my email address, Twitter, Google+, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and the Game Master's Journey voicemail number where you can call and leave me a message. If your question or feedback is entertaining or enlightening or both, you might even hear your message on the show. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future topics, I would love to hear from you. You can also find a link to the Game Master's Journey community where you can share ideas with other listener GMs. Finally, you can learn about how you can support the show by becoming a patron, by making a one-time donation, by using my Amazon referral link when you shop on Amazon, by buying a Starwalker Studios t-shirt, or by purchasing my D&D adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. You can find all this and more at starwalkerstudios.com. I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I hope you have a chance to run your favorite RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. 